Greetings and welcome to the second live on-campus filming of the Rays podcast. It is my pleasure to be here at UMass Lowell on an incredible fall New England day with my friend and the Vice Chancellor of Advancement here at UMass Lowell, John Fudo. John, great to see you. Thank you so much Brent, for, always uh, a pleasure. for having me. And uh, it is, uh, it's great to be here. I will admit to the Rays audience that this is actually a, a redo. We had uh, some audio issues in our first attempt with John, so we're going to be so well prepared for this conversation. Um, but but thank and I you thought for it was me. the video issue. No, no, it, we are uh, no. It's 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 really great to be here and um, wanted to start like we start many of these conversations. We've got a bunch of folks listening who are uh, either current advancement professionals or interested uh, in the advancement sector, uh, and many uh, aspire to be in a leadership role someday. You've uh, elevated to the vice chancellor role here and had uh, great success in your campaign, which we'll talk more about. But would love you to start by just sharing your career path and what led you uh, to UMass Lowell. Sure. Uh, well, I actually started in this business almost 35 years ago in the nonprofit world. Of course, I was only four at the time. Right. Uh, but my, my nonprofit career started out in Southern California at Toastmasters International. Uh, where I was in charge of public relations, membership, club development. And it was there that I, I really started to feel how important it was to be able to work in an environment where it's all about supporting the people around you. And it's all about the membership. It's all about your constituents. And so when I decided it was time to leave Southern California and come back home to Massachusetts, it just seemed like advancement which at the time didn't even have that name on it it was alumni relations and development uh, but that seemed like the right path because i loved the work that i was doing so i was able to find a job at tufts university in the alumni office and so started my higher ed career back in the 80s what was the first title dear you, you yes recall? my first title was director of educational and field services and so what it really meant is I ran the club and chapter program and was responsible mostly for regional programs. Just but saying I, club and chapters is much clearer than education absolutely. field services. So I'm glad we've tightened up the, uh, absolutely. the terminology. But I, I loved my time at Tufts. And from there, I went on to become the alumni director and associate vice chancellor for university relations at UMass Amherst. So that was my first stint in the UMass system. And I was at UMass Amherst for six years, then became the executive director of the Alumni Association at the University of Connecticut, and spent eight great years in Stores, Connecticut. And uh, we did a lot of terrific things for the university there. The university blossomed during the time I was there, so it was a lot of fun to see how the university grew. And then from there, uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired by Jim Husson to come back to my undergraduate alma mater, Boston College, as Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations. And then uh, eventually I became Senior Development Officer there as well. I left BC to take my first VP job in development as the Chief Development Officer for United Way mm -hmm. uh, here in Boston. And from there moved to UMass Lowell four years ago, hired by our chancellor, who was new at the time, Jackie Maloney. Uh, Jackie is a, a double UMass alum, a double Riverhawk uh, from UMass Lowell. 
and has been on campus for 30 plus years, but had just become the chancellor when Marty Meehan moved on to the presidency of the UMass system. And so I was Jackie's first hire four years ago, and it has been an incredible run. I absolutely love it here. So is it, I mean, can we all acknowledge that being called vice chancellor is cooler than vice president? Is there a debate about that in the sector or what's the deal with that? So I'll tell you when, when it's really cool, Brent, when you're overseas. Because overseas in some countries, the vice chancellor is the person who runs the university. And so I've gone to events overseas where they hear vice chancellor and the red carpet gets rolled out. There we go. And it makes those long flights all worthwhile. Fair enough. Awesome. So we can all agree vice chancellor is the way to go. If you're thinking or negotiating <laughs> for titles out there, go with the chancellor title. Um, one of the things we've talked about over the years, and I was fortunate to get to know John early in our entrepreneurial journey at Evertrue, is just the importance of uh, mentorship. And you've re referenced in the past how important um, some key mentors are in, in have been in your uh, journey. Uh, and I'd love you just to share a little bit about some of the people who've made an impact on you and, and also why maybe they believed in you or willing mm -hmm. to sort of assume either formal or informal mentorship roles. Sure. Well, I'd have to say my first mentor uh, was my first boss in the nonprofit world, and that was Terry McCann, the executive director at Toastmasters International. Terry was a former gold medal winner uh, in the 1960 Olympics in Rome, and Terry was someone who got there because of his hard work. And he not only won the Olympic gold because of his hard work, but that's how he found himself climbing a ladder uh, in the nonprofit world, ultimately to become the executive director of a global mm -hmm. organization. And Terry was great. He was a great role model. And I was thinking of him. He, he pa unfortunately passed away several years ago. But I was thinking of him recently when the San Francisco Giants were in town and Carl and Mike Yastrzemski got together because growing up, Yaz was always an idol of mine as mm -hmm. well. And it was because of his work ethic. And that's what Terry had that really w was something that was an, an inspiration. And so I learned a lot from Terry about work ethic and a lot about how to, to treat your constituents, how to treat your clients, your customers, your members. How did he treat his constituents or what, what are the lessons that stand out? It, you know, he, he put them first and it, it is all about treat others the way you would want to be treated. And that's exactly what we learned from Terry and I've tried to carry that with me to this day. And I'll tell you what that means is when you treat people well, they don't feel like they're your donors, your prospects, your members, your constituents. They feel like you're your friends. Mm -hmm. And I still have friends to this day that I stay in touch with from my time at Toastmasters, from my time at Tufts, and from all the institutions that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. And so that's when you feel like, okay, it's not just about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong, the bottom line's important, but it's not just about the bottom line. It's about developing relationships that are going to be lifelong relationships, whether it's the lifelong relationship between you and your alum, mm -hmm. or the more importantly, the lifelong relationship that the alum has with the institution. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're really all about, is trying to make sure that we're building that 
uh, that lifelong connection. And so Terry was the first person that, that taught me that. Uh, I had some other great People along the way, Ed Allenby at the University of Connecticut was somebody I really admired and enjoyed working for for, for years. Uh, but then I got to BC and I was surrounded by them. I, I was really surrounded by them. Jim Husson, Tom Lockerbie, Matthew Einan, three of the best fundraising minds that I think to this day I've ever known. So when you think of those three people, like what stands out as like the one thing maybe that you got from each of them, or when you think of them, what's the the one word that comes to mind um, that you've taken with you? Strategic. The strategic, thoughtful approach that they take to everything. Uh, there are a lot of times in this business where you feel like you've got to react, where something happens and you've got to jump, you've got to make a decision right away, You've got to turn a corner one way or the other. Jim, Tom, and Maddie always think about the strategy, and they they take the time to think, okay, what's in the best interest of the university? What's in the best interest of this institution at this time? And so I learned from all three of them in different ways, but ultimately it was the same thing. It was how do you put the thought that's necessary to be successful into everything you do. And if it weren't for those three people, I wouldn't be sitting in this office right now. It is fascinating. I mean, it's kind of like sometimes they'll show college football coaches and they'll show the picture where there was the head coach and the five assistants, and now all five of the assistants are head coaches elsewhere. And that's sort of what it sounds like happened with you. Uh, Maddie's at... Um, Franklin and Marshall. Franklin and Marshall, and and Tom is at Phillips Andover, Andover. Yeah. and uh, you're here, and then uh, uh, what was the fourth that you mentioned? Uh, well, Jim. Oh, and Jim, yeah, and Jim right. is at, at Boston College. Yeah, so um, so it's really it's got to be fun to have all been able to elevate into leadership positions, but still you know maintain those relationships oh, yeah. and. Um, yeah, and, and this is, I've always said, and this actually goes back to when I first got to UMass Amherst in the 90s, I was being interviewed by a local newspaper and they asked me about my philosophy on alumni relations. And what I said to them, uh, two things. One was that uh, our Fridays end on Saturday and our Mondays start on Sunday. Now, that was back in the days before anyone had ever coined the phrase 24-7. Right. But when you're in this business, you really do have to be on all the time. Right. You know, I lived in Amherst, and on a Sunday morning, I could not get up and go downtown to get a newspaper and a coffee unless I was showered and shaved and I couldn't be wearing sweatpants because you're, you're going to run into people that you know. So that was one thing about, about this business. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that it's not a job and it's not even a career. So you hear people talking about, well, don't just look for a job, look for a career. This isn't even a career, it's a lifestyle. And you have to be able to embrace it. You have to want to do this and understand that it's not a nine to five. It's not an eight to six. It can be 24 yeah. seven, it can be Fridays ending on Saturday and Monday starting on Sunday. Um, but if you embrace it, if you understand it, 
you'll you'll learn to love it. Yeah. And that's how you can stay in a business like this for 35 plus years. So how is it though? Because you really, I mean, at one level, you just have to believe in the importance of education, right? You have to believe right. in the need for philanthropy to support education generally, but you've also had to sell different products over the years. When you, when you think about how do you take that same level of passion from UConn to UMass Amherst to Boston College to here, and how do you get as excited about each of those uh, offerings or products, if you think about it that way, um, recognizing that, you know, maybe it was a unique with Boston College because you went there and, and it was more a part of your life, but coming here, for example, mm -hmm. and really getting that excited, that passionate about this product, the, the benefits that philanthropy to UMass Lowell can have in this community to this student you know, population, how do you kind of get yourself excited about joining a new team and, and selling sure. a new vision? You know, Brent, it's really not hard to do. And, and part of it is you have to understand the mission of the institution. And really, whether you're public or private, the missions aren't that different. The mission is about educating the kids. Now, I was first generation college, mm -hmm. just like so many of our students here mm -hmm. now at UMass Lowell. As a matter of fact, a third of our incoming class is still comprised of first generation college students. But when I go back and I think about the places where I've been and my first role as an alumni director was at UMass Amherst. And imagine being a BC guy going to UMass Amherst and I can't even tell you how many times somebody said to me, how could a BC alum be our alumni director? And my response was always the same. It was, well, sure, I can't tell stories from personal experiences like skating on the campus pond and what it's like to do that. But I love the institution as much as anyone mm -hmm. because I believe in the mission. I believe in the faculty and the work that's being done. I believe in trying to make life better on campus for not just the students that were there now, but for generations to come. And I didn't think I'd have to deal with that again until I got to UConn and then had to answer the same questions. How can a BC guy be our alumni director? Same answer, same thing, because it was the same feeling. I wanted to be at a place where not just I could make a difference, but where my team could make a difference in helping to keep students and alumni connected, mm -hmm. connected to the university, connected to each other, so that that way, ultimately, the university gets better and better and can provide better services, better educational opportunities for those generations in the future. Going back to BC was a great opportunity for me to be back at my mm -hmm. alma mater uh, because I knew it so well. Mm -hmm. And now I'm here at a place where my wife used to work here 20 years ago. Uh, she was working in this office, uh, in the alumni office. This has always been special to us. Mm -hmm. you know, when Maddie Einan was working here before he and I had an opportunity to work together at, at BC, uh, our friendship goes back that far mm -hmm as well. And so UMass Lowell has always been so important to us because of the kind of institution it is, the mission that it has. And you can probably see up over my shoulder, um, my wife and I have endowed a scholarship here. Uh, and, and the reason why I took that plaque and said it's going in my office and not 
not yours, is because every day I have a chance to look at it and to say, this isn't just about a job. Mm -hmm. It's about being able to support the students and help make it better for them and make their road to success a little easier. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you've had tremendous success in this campaign, which is really the inaugural campaign in, in, in the history of UMass Lowell, certainly at this scale. Uh, and you've also had some incredibly exciting moments and guests throughout that mm -hmm. campaign. Yes, so okay. why don't you give us the quick update on just what the campaign experience was like, what it was like even signing up for that, frankly, sure. not just you, but Jackie and, and the whole system and, um, and, uh, and maybe some of the favorite memories along the way. Sure. Well, we had a chancellor here for 25 years who, who did some great things, Bill Hogan. Uh, people like Maddie, people like my wife. Uh, worked for Bill over the years, but, but Bill really believed that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts should be supporting and funding the university. And that's because back in Bill's early days, the Commonwealth did. And so we were getting more than 80% of our funding from the state. Well, that has flipped over the years, and now only 20% of the university's funding comes from the state, and the rest is self-generated. So when Marty Meehan came in here a little more than a dozen years ago as chancellor, he recognized and valued the importance of being more philanthropic and trying to get more private support. So it was under Marty's watch as chancellor mm -hmm. and working with Jackie, who had been his executive vice chancellor at the time, they said, okay, we've got to go into a fundraising campaign. And it's the first time we had ever approached a campaign, approached numbers that were significant mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And so we brought in consultants who said to us, well, you've never done this before at this level. So we think that you should plan to raise $100 million, set your goal at $100 million over the next seven years. Now, I know there are billion-dollar campaigns out there all over the place these days, and that's great. That's not who we were at the time. We don't have that kind of, uh, of constituency because we've been nine different institutions in our history. This is our 125th year anniversary, but we've been nine institutions, and so trying to get people to support you when you're UMass Lowell and they're still Lowell Tech mm -hmm. or Lowell State and then became you Lowell and then became UMass Lowell. Sometimes it's, it's hard pulling all that together, but we've been able to do that, mm -hmm. I think, to a great extent. And I think Marty and Jackie deserve the bulk of the credit mm -hmm. for that. And so we said, well, we recognize we've never done this before and 100 million seems bold, but we actually think we can do better. So we set our goal at 125 million mm -hmm. to raise by June of 2020. And when was this? When uh, were you setting that? This was in 2013. Mm -hmm. And so we, we started the quiet phase then. We officially kicked the campaign off in uh, April of 2016. We were going to do it a little earlier, but we had a great leadership change. You know, if you can call a leadership change great, this was ideal for us because Marty became the president mm -hmm. of the UMass system in Boston, and then Jackie was hired to succeed him as chancellor, and so I was Jackie's first hire. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so our campaign kickoff got pushed a little bit back 
uh, once I came in, but when we kicked the campaign off, we said, okay, we're already seeing some great things here and we really think we can do this, and, and we did. We, we hit our $125 million goal 18 months early. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we hit that goal about a year ago and our campaign executive committee rightfully encouraged us to reset our goal and mm -hmm. to set it higher. So we set a goal at 150 million, mm -hmm. again, to raise by June of 2020. Uh, and I am very happy to say that just this past week, we hit that goal. And so we are now at, at 150 million uh, and counting. So yep. we, won't, yet. we yep. won't reset the goal. Yep. We'll just uh, finish out this year and then uh, see what happens from there and, and get ready for the next campaign. Incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And when you think about, you know, quickly what the impact, like 150 million, 125 million, it's a lot of money. What does that mean to a community like this? Like what what is, you know, in 20 years when we come here, why will it be different, better, stronger as a result specifically? Yeah. So you had a chance to drive through Lowell and see some of the historic Incredible. buildings. Yeah. Even this building that we're in was the manager's office for the mill that you see mm. out the window mm -hmm. that's now a condo complex. Mm -hmm. and, and we've been able to renovate this thanks to a very generous donor and move in here. Uh, Lowell has such a blue collar uh, textile revolu American Revolution you know, feel to it. And yet without the university, I'm not sure what direction mm -hmm. Lowell would have gone. And the university has really helped raise the city. And now, and we've got a great relationship with the city. And I think there's a mutual respect there and admiration uh, for what the city represents and, and the culture of the city. We have our own culture here that is an amazing culture and it absolutely comes from the top down. I think Marty and Jackie said it and you just feel it on campus. 45% mm -hmm. of our faculty and staff give to the university and have given in this campaign. The national average is 17.7%. Mm -hmm. So th there is something special that's here and we want that to continue because we want in the future UMass Lowell to not just be somebody's second choice. For a lot of our students now, we're their first choice. Mm -hmm. we're, the, we're the go to school. And we have students every day who say, if not for UMass Lowell, I don't know that I would have gone to college. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the affordability issue, the quality issue, the cultural issue, a combination of all three, that's what we want. And that's what I think the campaign has helped us achieve. And yes, we had some pretty amazing people who have helped us along the way. Like who? Uh, well, we were pretty fortunate enough last year to have a visit to campus from Oprah Winfrey. Uh, and if you ask... I'm just going to go on a limb. There are not too many advancement leaders who've been a part of hosting Oprah Winfrey. That, well, so, that, that's what I was going to say. So you called her up. You said, hey, it's John. Yeah. I need you to come out here and get excited about the campaign. I mean, how, how did this go down? Well, and she said, John, why haven't you been returning my right, calls? Right. <laughs> no, no, actually, so what happened was we have an incredible faculty member here, Andre Dubus III, who is just a brilliant writer, a great professor. And Andre was fortunate enough because of what a, what a superb writer he is. He had a book that was part of Oprah's book club back 20 years ago. And when, when 
Andre went on the show, not only did his book skyrocket, as you can imagine, uh, because that was the height of Oprah mm -hmm. uh, on television, and when he left and came back to campus, the first thing he did was he wrote her out a thank you note. Just a handwritten thank you note for giving him the opportunity to be a part of her world. She had never forgotten that. And so when Andre reached out to her, not John Fudo, but when Andre reached out to her uh, about a year and a half or so ago, almost two years ago, and said, we'd love for you to come here. She remembered him. She remembered the thank you letter, the thank you note. And then, of course, her team, as you can imagine, did its research. They mm -hmm. did the due diligence. They looked at UMass Lowell to see who we were and how that meshed with Oprah. And of course... Because even for her spending her time, it's almost like an investment decision. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, she's got to look at it and decide what's the context, right. who are the people, what's the impact, and of all the things I could do to further support her legacy and impact, does this place warrant it? A absolutely. And so she and her team made the decision that we were a good fit for Oprah. And right away she said, I'm coming not charging you a dime, no expenses, nothing. Uh, and so her team showed up a couple of days of, ahead of time. Uh, they went through the walkthroughs. Oprah showed up. She gave us a full day. She did a master class on campus for about 300 students. Uh, we had to limit it to 300 students. Then she had a conversation like this with, with the chancellor uh, for, for about an hour and a half. And that in itself, was the greatest thing that this university has ever seen because it was taking somebody who was so widely respected around the world and putting her on a stage with our chancellor and just for the PR value alone it was mm -hmm. worth it but because we were able to fill the Songus Center uh, with sponsors and guests we actually raised one and a half million dollars toward the event and we were thrilled and then at the very end of the night, Oprah was given an honorary degree, and she had actually had the presence of mind to say to one of her AV people before the, the program started, once I'm given the honorary degree, I want you to bring me out a handheld microphone, because she knew when she put on the gown, it would cover her lavalier mm -hmm. mic. So they brought her out a microphone, and earlier that night, in the green room that we had set up, because we had raised this money in her name, we raised it for scholarships. And so we actually gave out the first six Oprah scholarships earlier that day. And we had those students, those six students, write out thank you notes to Oprah. They were put in a basket in the green room. Well, she read them before she even came out on stage. And so she came out on stage uh, after the ceremony for the honorary degree, she grabbed the microphone and she talked about what a great place UMass Lowell is, what a special place it is, how thrilled she was to be there and to meet these students, and how impressed she was that we raised one and a half million dollars for scholarships. And then she said, and I'm going to match it. And the look on all our faces at that point, because we, we hadn't had the conversation. Jackie and I had personally and purposely said, 
let's not say anything to her until after the mm -hmm. fact. We'll we'll circle back mm -hmm. around and mm -hmm. see if if there was an opportunity for mm -hmm. the Oprah Foundation mm -hmm. to help support scholarships. But we had no idea that she was going to make that announcement that night. And then as she walked off the stage, and we had the six Oprah scholars come out on stage. As she walked off the stage, she turned to the six of them and she said, follow me. And she took them back into the green room with her. And once she closed the door, she turned to them and she said, thank you for your note. I'm sorry to hear about your mother. This one student's mother was unfortunately dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. She turned to another student and she said, your message touched me because I grew up a lot like you did. So not only did she read those six cards, but she memorized, mm -hmm. she, she, it really sunk in mm -hmm. what they were talking about. And so she had this very personal conversation with them. And that just shows what kind of a, yeah. not just a philanthropist she is, but what kind of a humanitarian she is. So how many Oprah scholars will there be? Do we know yet? Well, or? they're going to continue, yeah. so it's not just a one-time thing. Wow. So the, the six that, that got their scholarships yeah. will continue to fund them and then add to it every year. How do you steward Oprah? Well, uh, we try to get together occasionally just for drinks. <laughs> right, and right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, that's uh, remarkable, and yeah. I did see a bunch of the photos, and we'll try to share some of the photos and the the. Uh, links uh, here in the podcast notes, but it uh, it was remarkable to be a part of, and it has to be um, very validating when you can, you know, you know how special this place is, and and that is obvious in talking to you. But um, but it's got to be just incredible to see somebody like that, and uh, and and she is going to be on the cover of the fall uh, UMass Lowell magazine. So yes. uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, one other area that I wanted to cover with you. You've, you've had the opportunity in this campaign um, to travel around the world, and most of the people listening, and, and myself included, have never flown across the world to sit down with a prospective donor mm -hmm. and sell a, a mission and impact about a community like Lowell thousands of miles away. And I know you've had some memorable experiences along that journey. Um, but, but just what is that like? Help our listeners and me understand um, the process of, of, of being in that room. How do you decide to ask somebody for 100,000, a million, five million, uh, and, and just any of those kinds of experiences stand out on this journey? Well, because of some of our programs here that are just globally uh, respected and, and have been for a long time in spite of the nine different exactly. brands and there there is some real uh, history and track record around right going areas. back yeah. to the days of Lowell Tech and Lowell right. State uh, because of those programs we have alumni all over the world who have just risen to the top uh, as a matter of fact I remember being in India uh, one year and going to a convention of plastics engineers and this was a convention that drew 250,000 people over the course of the week. The day we were there, the first day of the convention, there were 95,000 people there. And as we walked through the convention hall, uh, we, or I should say halls because there were six of them, but the one that we were in, we had a list of where our alumni were and we had been in touch with them. And so we went to visit one in particular. 
and they had a makeshift conference room that was built next to their booth. Hmm. And he invited us in. So you're basically doing donor visits throughout the show floor. Oh, absolutely. And we saw many alums uh, during that, just during that one day, let alone the rest of the trip. But we walked into this one conference room with our with our alum. We sat down, but I looked up on the wall, and on the wall he had a poster, uh, and it was framed, of Mickey Mouse holding a mug that had Mickey Mouse on the mug. And so I jokingly In said... In a makeshift vendor show floor conference room. Exactly. Okay. And I jokingly said to him, oh, I'm pretty sure that my daughter had that poster in, in her room growing up. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, Disney's one of our customers. So that just goes to show you that the quality level that our alumni mm -hmm. have, have risen to. Um, but I'll, I'll give you one great example to, to kind of show the psyche of donors, especially overseas, that I visited one alum in Taiwan who had not his undergraduate degree from the university, but his master's and his PhD were from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And so he had given us $100,000 and had started a scholarship fund. Years Mostly, ago or? Uh, probably about six, seven, eight years okay. ago. And he paid it off in just a few years. So he did it as a five-year pledge, and it was his first gift to the university. So a very generous gift, but he, he had done it as a five-year pledge, but he paid it off in a few years. So that right there tells you that there's some, uh, some desire there to continue to support the university because he was eager enough to pay off his pledge and willing to take a visit. Uh, so I, I went to visit him, and he took me through his factory. He has a company that, that makes all sorts of, of um, consumer products that you and I and others out mm -hmm. there would recognize. Mm -hmm. And so we went through his, his factory, and then he took me up into his office suite. And I walked into his office suite, and he had pieces of crystal and artwork everywhere. And he's showing me these pieces, and he would say things like, well, there are only 60 of these in the world. And then we walked over to a case of all Johnny Walker premium reserve scotch with his name etched on the bottle. And he pointed to one of them. He said, there are only 20 of these in Asia. Uh, and then fortunately, he said, and we're going to drink this tonight. But then we, we went in to sit down in his, in his office and I had in my mind, because he had given us $100,000, because he had paid it off early, because he, uh, he showed signs of wanting to get better connected, I thought to myself going over there that I could ask him for $250,000. And, and I felt pretty confident uh, that he would come through for us. And there were other alumni that we were visiting while we were there, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it wasn't that I went over just for that one visit. But as he was showing me all this artwork and the crystals and the Johnny Walker, and, and I could hear the pride in his voice for the university and for what he has accomplished personally and professionally. And then we get into his office, and on his wall he has 
uh, he has an award that he was given by his undergraduate institution there in Taiwan. But next to it, he has a couple of the items that we had sent him, his endowment certificate mm -hmm. and uh, a recognition that we had given him with a university alumni award. And so I thought, this is someone who really likes to feel that connection and, and likes the adoration mm -hmm. that comes with it. And so on the spot, I asked him for a million dollars. And not only did he say yes, but he then paid that off early, has since taken several other visits uh, from us. Uh, there's going to be other ways that he will continue to mm -hmm. contribute to the university in the future. We've had conversations with him about that. And, and so it, it was just a great opportunity to be with someone who truly wanted to be helpful, even though he was half a world away. He has since come back here. His million-dollar gift named uh, our makerspace mm -hmm. and our plastics department. So he has come back here uh, for the grand opening of the makerspace. He's met with students. He's, he meets with faculty all the time all over the world as they travel together for conferences. Uh, I just talked to him recently. He, he just loves his connection with UMass Lowell. Were you nervous making that ask? Oh, sure. Uh, the, you're, you're nervous making an ask of $100 or $100,000 because there's always the chance that not only will the answer be no, and probably more often you'll hear no, at least originally, than yes. Um, but there's the chance that, you, that the response could be, why would you even ask me for that? Or, no, of course I can't do that. But that's why you do the preparation ahead of time, the research, the, and why you've got to go with your gut feel ultimately. No matter what you have for research and what, what the history has been, it's got to be your gut feel. So I've had people say no. I've had a lot of people say yes. But there's always that sense of anxiety mm -hmm. and, and uh, enthusiasm yeah. that you feel when you're doing it. Do you think as a sector we are too aggressive or not aggressive enough? Yes. It can go both ways. It, it really can go both ways because I know there are times when you're building a relationship with a donor and you say, I don't know if this is the right time or I don't know if, if the relationship is there yet or, mm -hmm. or I know that this donor has other things on mm -hmm. her or his mind. Uh, and in plans, so maybe this isn't the right time, and so you kind of push back yeah. a little bit, which actually sometimes you can get too close to a donor, mm -hmm. and you get so close that then you become hesitant to make that ask. So sure, there are times that we're not aggressive enough, mm -hmm. and then times that I think we can be too aggressive because we're such a metrics-driven mm -hmm. business. Uh, and uh, let's make no mistake about it, we are a business mm -hmm. uh, in, in advancement. And so, sure, you could, you could ask for too much too soon. You could ask for too little too soon. But hard to generalize really yeah, down to the individual. Yeah, yeah. and that's why I think uh, major gift work is as much an art as it is a mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. When you think about the sector in general, it's evolved a lot since you started. Um, where do you feel like maybe we're over investing on 
strategies that aren't as effective in 2019 as they were in 1999, let's say. Uh, and I'm also curious to get your take on where we're underinvesting. Well, I, I would say if you're using that time frame of that sure. these last 20 years, uh, I would say one place where I've seen overinvestment is probably in uh, the telefund. Mm -hmm. Look at how telephones in general mm -hmm. have changed. And now in 1999, we didn't have smartphones. Well, now we have smartphones. Now we have caller ID. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't use their phones. We're, they're getting rid of landlines. Right. Uh, there are all sorts of, of difficulties and hurdles to getting through to alumni and friends to ask them for gifts by phone. Mm -hmm. And you've seen around the country that there are schools that are saying, okay, we're gonna back mm -hmm. off this. But there are also still a lot of schools where that's probably the single largest line item in their annual fund, for example. Absolutely. Even though it's 2019. Uh, yeah. You know what the single largest line item is for us in, in terms of revenue? Direct mail. Go figure. Who would believe, and, and maybe there are still some yeah. other institutions, not just UMass Lowell, where direct mail is bringing in your single greatest amount mm -hmm. of annual fund dollars. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that there has been, in some cases, an overinvestment in, in the telefund. Mm -hmm. Where I think we underinvest, and, and I'm trying to change that now, is in digital mm -hmm. communications. And not just digital communications, but understanding our business through digital platforms mm -hmm. and digital opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know yourself, when you and I first met, we sat down in my office at BC, and this is now going back 10 yeah, or so years, right? Yeah, right, right? At, yeah. and, and at the time, what you were building was something not just new for you, but new to the business. Mm -hmm. Well, nowadays, uh, I'm getting calls and emails every day from potential partners who have something. Might not be what, what you have yep. to offer uh, at Evertrue, but it's something that is digitally focused right. that can help our, uh, help potentially help our success. And I don't dispute any of it. I'm sure it mm -hmm. all can, mm -hmm. but tomorrow there's gonna be something new. Right, I think what we've observed is for a long time and, and when we got started, it just seemed like technology was way behind in this industry. Right. And I feel like we're now kind of getting to a point where technology is almost ahead of the industry, not just us. I mean, in general, that ecosystem has matured uh, with the growth of mobile and social and digital more broadly. And what it appears to us is that there's actually now almost catching up that needs to happen as you think about job titles and org charts and new responsibilities. There can be expertise on a team that maybe is very fluent in some of the traditional channels, but not yet in some of the new channels. And that can then make it hard uh, for somebody in your position to have to evaluate which vendors or what's the combination of technologies and tools I should use. And so I'm curious just to get your take on, it feels to me like if I were a young advancement professional wanting to be you know, in a leadership position down the road, that developing expertise and fluency around the digital technology space um, could be strategic in my own career development, but there's also a part of me that wonders, is that always going to be just passed off to the side because ultimately probably not going to influence principal gifts sure. and big-time revenue? So what's your view on just 
the importance of digital in the org chart as a career path for this sector? I, I think it's critical. And as we get ready for the next campaign here, that's an area where I would really like to see us focus. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, there are things that I can envision just because of my experience mm -hmm. and where I've been and the people that I'm surrounded by every day, but things that I can't necessarily envision because it's either a technology that is not yet proven right. or I haven't seen actual results. So I'm going to take you back uh, five or so years ago. You were on a panel, I believe it was for AFP. Yep. You were on a panel with one of my former colleagues from Boston College. And you two were telling the story of how when, when BC went out to the West Coast to play USC in football for the first time in, in years, uh, we were trying to plan some events. And through Facebook, you and Linda, mm -hmm. uh, helped discover that there was an alum who happened to be in Northern California mm -hmm. who was liking all of our posts, who was posting himself about wanting to come down for the game, who had a lot of people liking his post. And I remember you saying to Linda at the time, was he on anyone's radar screen? And he wasn't. And he was like the CFO of, of a, a private equity exactly. firm or something. I remember that exactly. Example. Yeah. And that really hit me because I thought to myself, wow, this is the power of what an ever hidden, hidden in plain sight. I mean, they're just right. hidden in plain sight. How do we go from digital to thinking about that person as an individual, understanding that even if they are not engaged by traditional metrics, he's highly engaged and getting no follow-up and no response. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. so that's why I think being in the digital space yeah is so important and again what scares me about it Brent is that what's there today is going to be different mm -hmm. potentially tomorrow. Yeah. Now you've been able to continue to change mm -hmm. I don't even want to say what the times because what the times makes it sound like it's been right. decades right. but it is it, it feels like every three months every six months every year there's something new or there has to yes. be something new. No doubt. And I think part of it is, okay, what are the technologies and software platforms that, that you, know, you could buy or that your, your uh, peers could buy? But then there's also, what are ways that we can integrate simple approaches that maybe don't even require buying a new software system? We were just talking to a gift officer, uh, Keith Hannon at Cornell University, and he works in athletics fundraising. And one of the examples he shared has nothing to do with buying a new system, um, but I think is so replicable and reflective of how digital can not only improve the engagement and discovery process, but really improve the donor experience. What he's been doing as an athletics fundraiser is before he goes and meets you, let's say that you, uh, you know, played on the football team, he will walk down to the football coach's office and say, hey Dave, I'm gonna go meet John. He's in St. Louis. Could you just do a quick video thanking John for mm -hmm. his support? And on his own iPhone, he's recording the coach, sitting down with the prospect, sliding his phone over and saying, before we start, I've got a message for you. That's like, great. How cool is that? And yeah. you know, maybe as you think about your future visits or your colleagues, like, how do you bring a little bit of Lowell and the impact or the student journey to your constituents wherever they are, even if it's one-to-one, 
as you're going to Taiwan next time, is there something like that yeah. you can do? And, and so I think that there's, there's so many examples uh, that can be really complex regarding new software systems, but then there's examples like that where, oh, yeah. you know, back to your point of the golden rule, like that's how I'd want to be treated. And that's if somebody right. showed up and said, hey, here's a message from the head football coach at Brown, I mean, that, yeah. that just makes you feel good. And, yeah. and it's Hi, easy. Hi, Brent, and, this is Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, uh, if you can make that happen, yeah, we, we will... Uh, uh, be sharing that all over all of our social content Perfect. for uh, all of time. But um, as we conclude here, I wanted to, to get a couple of additional thoughts in. One, you are a prolific author in the case circuit. What inspired you to start writing and would you share with our audience? You've written six or seven books and maybe more to come, um, but uh, which one was your favorite? I've got to ask. Uh, if that's allowed, uh, which which kid was your favorite? And um, just tell us a little bit about the experience being an author. So I think it just goes back to my experience with Case, which really does go back throughout my entire career mm -hmm. in, in higher ed, back 30 plus years, because I felt that Case was such a valuable resource for mm -hmm. me. And it was everything from the conferences uh, to the resources themselves, the publications, the networking opportunities, and you I know I actually met my co-founder Jesse Bardo at a case See? conference. So I'm with you on yeah the I, uh, the importance there. And I met so many great people, and I have met so many great people through the years who to this day remain personal yeah. friends. Uh, I felt like there were people who who taught me some things through case. I then try to be a mentor mm -hmm. and in return to others. Uh, and so when Case came to me, and this now goes back, I, I think about 25 years to the first book, uh, which was a book for newcomers in alumni relations. Uh, and, and what was so special about that was that was a book where I was able to reach out to friends and colleagues around the country, around the world, and get them to help author chapters. So I was more the editor right. for that one than, than the author itself, but it allowed me to network with, with my friends. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of the books that I've done have been along those lines. Uh, the last three have been books that I've written, a, a book on public speaking, mm -hmm. I'd Rather Eat Live Spiders, which right. that is probably my favorite. Yep both because it actually started as my master's thesis years ago and then I put it away and never saw it again for 15 years until Case expressed an interest in, in a book on public speaking and effective communication. And when I had to go back to it and start really rewriting it, mm -hmm. I found I had a chapter all about how to use overhead slides on an overhead projector. So that's how long ago it was uh, that I that I had originally written that but that was fun because it, it was not only something that I had worked on earlier but it was written in a light way and it's an easy read and it's it was fun uh, so I tried to do that with my book Herding Cats about mm -hmm. managing volunteers and then the most recent one Bird's Eye View which is a guide for senior alumni and donor engagement professionals where I do have a lot of people who have contributed thoughts to it, not full chapters, uh, but their anecdotes, their, their stories, their tips. And so that's what makes it special to me when I can do something with CASE, because not only is CASE a great organization, mm -hmm. 
but I'm still networking through totally. them today. And so, yes, there is a, a seventh book that we've been talking about, and we'll see if that comes to fruition at some point soon. We will stay tuned, and I would love to do a book review uh, on the Everture blog if I get that opportunity. Um, as we conclude, I would love your perspective just for our audience, many of whom are advancing through their own careers at this point. When you think about what separates the best advancement professionals you've worked with, and you've worked with some amazing yeah. people who've gone on to leadership positions, and, and I'm sure more that will continue to do so in the coming years, what do you think really makes someone stand out? What are you looking for when you're hiring people? Um, any parting thoughts yeah. on that front? This is it, Brent. It, it's the passion. I am so fortunate here at UMass Lowell to be surrounded by a, an absolutely fabulous advancement team. And what makes them special is they all care about the students. They care about the students, about the faculty, about the university, about each other. Does that get lost sometimes? I oh, mean, yeah. it sounds really strong here, but the implication is that maybe that isn't the case everywhere. It, it, it can get lost because some people look at what they do as a job or as a career and not as the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And you really have to become embedded in the culture of the institution and you have to embrace it. And, and that does make UMass Lowell special. And I've seen it here and there in some places, mm -hmm. but not to the extent that I see it here. And so you really have to be here to serve others. You have to be here to make sure that, uh, that the students are getting what they need to be successful, and you put that first. And I say to my team all the time, we're not here just to raise money. We're here for the future of the institution. We're here to make the chancellor successful. Because if she's successful, then that means we're successful. And her goal is to set this university in a great position for now and for the future. So it's all about the culture. It's all about how you treat people. It's all about the thank you notes mm -hmm. from an Andre Debus to an Oprah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I have talked about the, the, the concept that, that was shared with me by a former staff member. Thank yous are free. Mm -hmm. And when this staff member of mine said this to me years ago, he said, thank yous are free, and I've never forgotten that. It's, it was a chapter in one of my books because of the fact that it's so important to just start with yes, mm -hmm. to, to want to be a part of this culture, to want to be a part of this kind of environment and advancement, and, and to, to do everything you can to make sure that your institution is set for the future. Well, John, your enthusiasm for this place is uh, infectious and your belief in the impact is very inspiring and I can see why you've been so successful throughout your career but especially in this campaign uh, and on that note given that thank yous are free I will offer you a heartfelt thank you for sharing you. your perspective uh, are you hiring should be people be checking out the uh, careers page here any any uh, last thoughts on that Anybody who is out there who wants to, to find out more about what we do, whether it's with the intention of a potential position mm -hmm. or even just to talk about the way we th do things, reach out to me directly. I'm happy to have those conversations because going back to the whole conversation about case, people did that for me. Yes. 
over the years and so it's one of the ways that I can give back to the profession is to be able to be available to just sit and talk about the work that we do. It was like that when uh, throughout my career. Yeah. Uh, well if you're listening and you don't take John up on that offer you're crazy. It's very generous. I know that you'll enjoy the conversation uh, with him so please uh, reach out uh, and with that John thank you so much for having us here. Brent thank you. I'm thrilled to be doing this Cheers. with you. Thank you so much. Yes.